0: I would like to, before we get into the message, share one of my favorite quotes pertaining to our country, but also pertaining to the church. I made these quotes available on the back. I'm the only one that touched them. My hands were sanitized when I printed them and placed them on the table back there. So I'll let you grab them at your discretion if you feel safe. There's enough for everyone here. Um, But it's it's a quote taken from... Uh, a French philosopher who came to America after uh, our Revolutionary War, after our Declaration of Independence. He lived from 1805 to 1859. And so we were, you know, we were some years after that in 1776. But in 1840, he wrote a book uh, called Democracy in America. That's the short title version. Remember how books were, the titles were this long. Um, That's the condensed version. But Alexis de Tocqueville said this, it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it, and this quote is available uh, in a half sheet of paper in the back. He said, when I sought, when I came to America and I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and in her ample rivers, uh, it was not there. I sought for it in her fertile fields and in her boundless forest, and it was not there. I sought for it in her rich mines and her vast world commerce and it was not there. I sought for it in her public school system and institutions of learning and in her Democratic Congress and in her matchless Constitution, and it was not there either. It wasn't until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. America is great because America is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The great experiment, America, that a people would govern themselves and declare that our rights, which are indivisible, inalienable, given to us by God, not government. He sought for that secret. And he's like, how, how can this great experiment even work? And it wasn't until he went into the churches, and not just the pulpit, but the people make up the churches, and did he understand, okay, here's how, here's the secret. And I I just want to say that because I might not be able to change the courthouse, the schoolhouse, the White House. I, I might not be able to have a very big impact there at all, and most likely I'm not. But where we can have our impact is in this church, in this community, at the place of work, at your, wherever you go to school, wherever you shop and have commerce. You take Christ with you. you. You take the secret and the power and the genius of America with you. I was reading over a lot of patriotic quotes that I had uh, just in my archives and um, it, it amazes me that people would risk their life and everything to come to this country for the purpose of freedom so that they could worship God um, freely. And they were, they were leaving slavery to come to a place where they said, our rights are derived from God, not government. And I know that people are trying to take down monuments and they're trying to, uh, you know, erase our American heritage and warts and black eyes and blemishes. I get it. What culture doesn't have that? But at least, at least we have a church, we have a God, we have a Bible, we have a freedom that our our, our rights come from God and not from government, that we could just proclaim the righteousness of Christ, right? And the liberty that's found in him. And so I just wanted to encourage you that we do have the greatest nation on God's green earth, but the greatness lies within the walls of the, the people within the walls of this building. You're looking at the greatness of America right here, right? Right here. It bothered me when I saw, this is just all side note, it bothered me when I saw um, someone throwing red paint on a monument to George Washington. That bothered me. Do you realize he was fighting for freedom And when he couldn't get supplies, when he couldn't get help or uh, backup or anything, there was people dying on his watch, just not in combat, just because they're trying to survive. And I I read a quote from him. He has many good godly quotes. But they couldn't even get a chaplain to come out to where he was. So you know what George Washington did? He became not only their general, but their pastor. He held church services and prayed with them and read scriptures, and and led people to Christ. And you're going to throw, you're going to desecrate a man of God? It just, it bothers me, really. But I understand, because people that really hate America, or they don't understand America, they really don't. They don't understand our godly heritage, our foundation. Do you realize the first 106 universities out of 108, in our country, were Christian. You know, the first book printed in America was the uh, the Bay of Psalms, and after that was the Bible. I mean, people that want the people. If you're going to get rid of all the things that made us who we are, right? You're not going to know where we came from, and you're going to be you're going to bound to repeat it again. So, anyways, um, I appreciate all of those men and women that have served in the armed forces, you know, to protect um, these, uh, these inalienable rights that, that we have. So, um, without reading the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, which I'd love to do, <laughs> uh, we're going to read the scriptures. And it's, last night, um, I, you know, the kids were coming back. I came and picked them up uh, down here, and they were out here late in the park and watching fireworks and stuff like that. Adam, uh, before he was going to bed, he says, Dad, I'm praying for you. And he normally does say that on Saturday night. He said, praying for you. And I really respect that and appreciate that about him. But he asked me, he said, hey, Dad, what's the message uh, that you're, what you're speaking about tomorrow? I said, well, uh, i love to preach on America and you know get all political, but I'm going to refrain from that. I'm going to just continue to go through John. And uh, I'm talking about the, where, the, where Jesus goes to this wedding And he turns the water into wine. And I said, you know what's interesting about that is the bridegroom who was not equipped or didn't have the supplies to provide for, and these wedding feasts usually lasted about seven days, he wasn't able to provide for the, you know, the, uh, the beverages and the refreshments for all of the people that he was extending hospitality to in this great celebration that he was hosting. That would have been disgraceful, and that would have been shameful for the host. So Jesus, his very first miracle, and John only records seven of them. He has a lot of sevens, you know, the seven I ams, and he has seven miracles in the book of John. But the very first one that Jesus does when he comes out, right? It's been 30 years of just kind of like, okay, you're the, you're the promised one. You're the deliverer. You're the redeemer. Uh, you're the one we've all been waiting for. You're the one all the prophets have been speaking about. Even the, the current day prophets when they were saying, this is the one. He's the, the light of the world, the light of the Gentiles. He's the salvation of Israel. He's the one. What are you doing, Jesus? 30 years. And the very first miracle he does... He doesn't heal a blind person. He doesn't raise anyone from the dead. He doesn't make anyone here again. He doesn't heal the leper colony. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know, provide money to pay for your taxes. Um, As all of these miracles that he was going to do after this, the very first one he does is he provides wine at a wedding. That's interesting. Is that interesting to you? And I think the big takeaway from this, and I know everyone gets hung, they go right to the wine. Is it intoxicating? uh, To me, don't get bogged down in that. Look at the heart of the Father. Jesus was waiting for directives from the Father, okay? I'll start when you want me to start. I'll do what you want me to do. What is it? And then he gets the green light. All right, provide for their creature comforts. Take shame off this host. Acknowledge wedding. a wedding ceremony between a man and a woman is God's first institution that he started. Right? And so here we have Jesus coming onto the scene. Come, his coming out party has real no significance. Look, you could live without wine, but you can't live without water. They could have just served water. But he provides a creature comfort. That's interesting. I, look, I wish I could avoid this. I wish I could just skirt the issue and, you know, let's talk about something else. But we got to deal with it because it's in the Bible. All right? I understand. Um, well, we'll get into all this in a little bit. But if you would, turn with me to John chapter 2 and then looking in verse uh, 1. And the third day there was a marriage of the, or in Cana in, of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Keep that in mind, because she kept all the things about Jesus in her heart, 30 years of waiting, and she was the one that had Jesus, it, miraculously, and could you imagine just 30 years of, a, well, the angel Gabriel told me, I mean, that, you know, my cousin, uh, the priest, uh, I mean, is G, what's Jesus, go, when's he going to just really kind of start doing what he came to do? And Jesus and his disciples were both invited to the marriage. And when they had lacked wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. She's not telling him what to do, right? She's just, a, she's just making an observation. And Jesus said unto her woman, and this isn't derogatory. I don't want you to you know, interpret the Bible based on our current culture. Uh, we'll address that in a little bit. What do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In other words, I'll come out, I'll display my glory, I'll reveal who I am when I get, when I get the go-ahead from headquarters, you know, God, God the Father. And his mother said unto his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's a very, very, very important phrase. She knows by faith she has a son that's now a 30-year-old man that's very significant, and he hasn't done any miracles and she's saying, I don't, something about Jesus. Because she hid this in her heart, remember, for 30 years. They had to go to Egypt and avoid persecution where all the other baby male children were killed. They had to come back. I mean, she did not have an easy life raising Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus was a troubled child, but I mean, he came at a time where it was trouble and they were after him and. He was flying under the radar, and he's saying, it's not my time, but when it is my time, uh, you'll know. And his mother said, whatever he says, do it. Because she knows whenever he comes out, it's going to be the right thing. So whatever he says, just go ahead and do it. Um, Okay? Verse 6. And there were six stone water, pot, water pots there, according to the purification of the Jews, each containing two or three measures, about 20 to 30 gallons. And uh, culturally, and we'll get into this a little bit, but as they would, whatever sort of courtyard or entrance into, if it's a foyer or uh, whatever sort of situation they had based on their uh, archaeology, or I mean, um, uh, architecture, so they would have stone water pots, and it was customary for them to just, you know, use that as a, a type of washing your hands. Kind of like how we have hand sanitizer in the back, right? So uh, they had six water pots. It was customary to do that. And um, so verse 7, Jesus said unto them, "We'll do this, fill the water pots with water. Maybe, maybe they have been depleted quite, some, uh, quite a bit because of the usage. And he says, and fill them to the brim. To the very top. This is interesting. Anyway, remember Maxwell House? Fill it to the rim with, or fill it to the brim with. Well, how did that commercial go? Anyways, I'd think of that. And he said unto them, Now draw out and carry it to the master of the feast. And they carried it. Could you imagine this? Okay, they fill the water pots, which their original purpose was not wine. It was to cleanse yourself. So they fill it because they're doing what he, he said to do. Mary said do whatever he says, just do it. So they do it, they fill it, and now they've got to carry some of that to you know the master. But think about this. They know what it was. It was water. They're carrying this by faith. Whatever he says, do it. See, Jesus might tell us to do something, and you're carrying something. And you're like, I don't know what the, I don't even get it. You don't need to get it. You walk by faith and not by sight. You see how this kind of translates to these guys? These guys are saying, okay, I don't know what's going on. I just got water, and it's not, it's not wine skins. These aren't wine bottles. These are purification pots. Fill it, okay? We'll do it. And now I'm going to carry it to the master. Maybe there's a consequence there too of like, what do you, what if they showed up and it was just dirty water? How insulting is that? So they're carrying this to the master by faith. And they filled him to the brim and they said, now draw it out and carry it to the master of the feast. And they carried it. They did it. Verse 9, and when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water which was made wine and did not know where it was from, but the servants who drew the water knew, they're, they're like, I don't know how this miracle happened or when it, you know, converted itself from water to wine, but they knew something like, well, we filled it with water, we clean ourselves with this, but now I'm going to give it to the master who probably has high standards, and we're trying to celebrate this wedding, and we're hosting it both of the bride and the bridegroom, and maybe there's some dynamics there. You know how weddings can be kind of tense sometimes when you've got two people, uh, with their families coming together. Um, and then he said, the master of the house or the feast called the bridegroom. Now, I want you to catch this. It was always the responsibility of the bridegroom to provide these things. And I want to bring this up later, but Jesus is the bridegroom. The earthly bridegroom didn't have the goods. The real bridegroom... Right, who really came for the purpose of a wedding, which is to get us his bride, the church. You see why this is a little bit more significant than healing a blind person? Not that that receiving your sight is insignificant. I'm not saying like raising the dead, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, all that. But even all of those miracles are to display that if Jesus has power over physical walking, he also has power over spiritual walking. If he has power over physical eyesight to see, he could give you spiritual eyesight to see. So it wasn't always about the physical needs. There is a greater picture. And so Jesus here is, he's almost hinting at the greater picture. This bridegroom doesn't have the resources to provide for the basic needs of a a normal Jewish celebration at a wedding, but the real bridegroom does and he just turns water into wine Uh, so here we go Uh, verse 10 and he said unto them every man at the beginning sets forth good wine and when men have drunk well then that which is worse but you have kept say the best till last right you have kept the good wine until now This is the beginning of the miracles Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee, and it revealed his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And we'll talk about that good wine because, I mean, there's a lot that goes. It's simple, but there's. I don't know how to make wine, but I read about it a little bit. It's not that difficult, but it's a long process. You don't just crush a grape, get the juice, and serve it. You know, it has to age. And that's why he's saying, oh, this is good wine, right? This isn't new wine, uh, crushed grapes. You don't even do that with Welch's grape juice. Um, So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll look at some thoughts and hopefully take some things from the heart of the Father to us, his children, and from the heart of the bridegroom, Jesus, to his bride, us, the church, And maybe leave here with maybe a different insight uh, into how compassionate and how loving Jesus is to even do this miracle. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for uh, the church today that we could gather. I just pray that this would be an encouragement and a blessing uh, to your people as it was to me. Uh, Help me to communicate these truths and help us, uh, I guess, not to be distracted, Lord, but to just look look at who you are and to see your heart clearly. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So where he says, my hour has not yet come, verses 1 through 5. I think he says it in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Again, could you imagine the patience of the mother Mary? She had been holding in her heart this miraculous birth, the message of the angel Gabriel, the prophecies that were said of Jesus, all the gifts that were given, all the worship that was given, all the adoration that was given. And then it went kind of silent. For 30 years, except 18 years prior. Remember when Jesus got lost and and Luke chapter 2 kind of left behind? And John doesn't go into this, but the other gospels do. Luke does. And um, they come and they find Jesus and he says, Don't you know I must be about my father's business? But we don't know much. And I'm not trying to, I'll be silent where the Bible's silent and I'll be loud and clear where the Bible's loud and clear. But we don't know much about what, what was going on in those years other than when Jesus said that uh, 18 years prior to this, this wedding thing. But he did say, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. Could you imagine having a kid that is so determined at the purpose for which he was here on earth for? He was always on purpose, I'm about my father's business. And so he's about ready to reveal uh, the father's business. Now, Jesus, um, it's interesting that his first order of miraculous business is at a wedding, right? And John the Baptist, if you recall, he addressed Jesus as, here's the bridegroom. It's almost as if John the Baptist is the best man, and he's introducing uh, Jesus as the bridegroom. And they're saying, hey, they're, deci- they're baptizing, making more disciples than you. And, and he says, it's okay, I'm not jealous, in other words. He must increase, I must decrease. But he really kind of sets the tone, and he kind of knew that Jesus is this bridegroom. But when Jesus says this, he says, uh, woman, you know, I, did you ever read that? Could, I dare you to leave church today for you men and address the next female you say as woman. I dare you, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you won't, you won't make it out of the parking lot. Yeah. Um, but when you read that at first glance, because you, sometimes we interpret the Bible through our, just our cultural lens, you know, woman, woman, you know, kind of guttural, hey, woman, where's my, where's my Swanson TV dinner? <laughs> so I don't think it's, it's said in that spirit or in that context. I think Jesus was kindly saying that he moves at his father's directive according to his will. In fact, I'll use that same phrase in another passage in the same book of John when Jesus is on the cross. Look at John chapter 19 and verse 26. Then when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Does that sound derogatory? Jesus is taking care of the sins of the world. At the same time, he's taking care of the needs of his mother. Do you think that sounds derogatory to you? It was a cultural phrase. When they said woman, um, it wasn't like woman, Swanson TV dinner. It wasn't like that. Woman, where's the remote control? Um, It's not like that at all. Jesus, he loved his mother. He had no disrespect towards his uh, mother. And obviously, when he's on the cross, he's taking care of her as he's taking care of the whole world. But what Jesus is revealing is that That he moves at the will and the directive of the Father and not on his own agenda. Look, here's my application and my takeaway from this. My hour has not come. We may never turn water into wine or do the miracles that Jesus did, but we could live how Jesus lived. By faith alone and God alone, we can learn to listen and obey the Spirit just as Jesus uh, was led. Uh, and obeyed the Spirit. He can tell us when to go and when to stop, what to say and what to do, and this is called walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And this will take a Christian a lifetime to do. I don't think anyone perfectly masters it. Jesus perfectly mastered it. Walked by total... Declaration of Independence yesterday... Jesus lived by a declaration of dependence, totally dependent on the Father. You know what your flesh wants to do? Declare independence from trusting Christ on a daily basis. Not your will, my will. Independent, right? Not your will, God, but my will be done. But when we say not my will your will be done. We're declaring our dependence upon the Father, and that's when we yield and we walk in the Spirit. How many? How many of us do that 100% of the day? No, not me. <laughs> but that's what the Christian life is all about, and that's who the Christian life looked like. It looked like Christ, and so he didn't pull out. He didn't do his own agenda. Think about the think about the intense pressure that Jesus was uh, succumbed to by his own family. Think about this. Um, you know, his brothers, his uh, cousins, aunts, uncles. He, here, he, here Jesus is later on in his ministry. He's helping other families out. He's paying for other people's taxes, miraculously, with a gold coin and a fish's mouth. Um, he's, is that why you fish so much, Eric? You're looking for those gold coins. <laughs> um, but he's taking care of the needs of everyone else. And could you imagine his, the pressure of the family of, pfft, okay, what about us? He is the only one that I know of that is able to not succumb to the most intense pressure, which comes from probably your family and your extended family, let alone peer pressure, he was so dialed into not my will your will be done. He was totally dependent on the Father. That's the takeaway that I take away from Jesus waiting, 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 waiting. Mary suggesting something, Jesus checks in with the Father. You remember when Jesus is writing in the sand and we don't know what he's writing, when the woman was caught in adultery and John A, we'll get to that later. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's waiting. Father, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Scholars interpret well. He's writing this, and maybe he's writing the commandments. Maybe he's—I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but it seems to me like he's waiting. And Jesus says, "The words that I say, they're not my words; are the Father's. The miracles that I do, they're not—they're not by my power. It's by the power of the Father." He waited. He waited. He trusted. He walked by faith. And the Christian life is lived the way Jesus lived it. We're not going to turn water into wine. Right, many of you are like, "Oh, darn it! Um, <laughs> we're not going to be able to do that." Um, but we could live the way Jesus lived, and that's by faith alone in uh, the Father alone. So, um, and then next we see in these verses where where Mary says, "Whatever He does, do it. Just do it." Nike could take a page out of the Bible. <laughs> I think they changed this slogan recently. I know this is an old phrase, but they milked it for years. Um, but whatever he says, just do it, right? Just do it. You might feel like one of those one of those servants that you're carrying something that doesn't make sense logically, and but Jesus tells you do it. It doesn't have to be logical. You know, but just do it. And then the spiritual uh, application is like, whatever he says, even if it doesn't make sense to your mind, your spirit will, will bear witness and say, okay, I'll just yield, I'll just yield to the will uh, of the Lord. Here's something uh, in seminary that I, I picked up. You ever heard of the Christian Law Association? Well, Dr. David Gibbs, he's an attorney, and he represents churches all over. Our, our church supports the Christian Law Association, or it did at one time. Um, anyways, he, he debated me. He asked for volunteers, and um, I ignorantly said I would go toe-to-toe with probably one of the leading attorneys in America for Christian liberties. And um, I didn't win, and he even played the opposite side. I was on the winning side, but he beat me arguing the other side. You know, that's how good he was. <laughs> so I never forget this, though. Um, and the argument was on whether to have seatbelts and buses or not for children's ministries to go into church. That was the argument. It was a case he was arguing, and he wanted to test it out on us. And so uh, anyways, so he said this, never deny the prompting of the Holy Spirit to do that, which is good. And I don't remember all the legal stuff that he, he talked about. I do remember him saying this, and it's kind of stuck with me. All I got to say is this, is just do it. If the Holy Spirit is telling you to write that card, write the card. Holy Spirit is telling you to make that call, make the call. Holy Spirit is telling you to go visit someone or give that person a gospel tract, give them a gospel tract. Holy Spirit is telling you, like, I know you're afraid. I know you're, you're timid. You need to share Jesus with that person. You need to share the love of God with that person. You know what? I'm carrying water. Okay, here it goes. I just wanted to tell you, you know, that God loves you. <laughs> um, however that manifests, all I'm saying is never deny the prompting of uh, the, this internal prompting of the Holy Spirit to do that which is good. I guarantee you, those of you that have lived like this and you have, you've never regretted doing what the Spirit's told you, Right? Look, the Spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. How many of you said, oh, man, serious? It's Sunday. It's my only day off. I guess I'll go to church. You know, your spirit's saying go to church. Your flesh is like, no, dude. Watch TV. Stay in bed. And then you come, and then afterwards you're like, you know what? I'm glad I came. You ever been like that? You ever... It could be with anything, right? That the Spirit is prompting you to do afterwards. You don't regret it when you listen to the Lord. All I'm saying is whatever He tells you to do, do it. Do it. Just do it by faith. Just do it by faith. Then in verse 6 of our text, John chapter 2. There were six stone water pots, according to the purification of the Jews, containing two to three measures about, because it says two and three of these measures. It equals about 20 to 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, not with wine, not with grape juice that would ferment into wine. Um, And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw out and carry it to the master of the feast. And they carried it. And as I've been saying, they carried it by faith because they saw water go into this and they knew what these water pots were for. They were used for purification. So these were customary tall stone water pots, um, about 30 gallons worth of water so that people entering and leaving could cleanse themselves both practically and ritually. There was a practical part of it, but there was also a ritual part of it. So to a Jewish mind, it would have been easy to relate that these were customs derived from the Old Mosaic Covenant. But Jesus changes the purpose of these water pots. He repurposes them for something else. And I think that's easy. or I mean, that's, that's awesome to see. So like Moses and the stone tablets of the Old Covenant, they focused on an external cleansing. Remember, it's water pots. There's practical parts to this, you know, cleanse yourself. Uh, but Moses wrote, had the Mosaic Law all on stone. So when Moses came on the scene, you know what one of the first miracles Moses did was? He turned the water into blood. Interesting, right? So Moses' first miracle was he turned the water into blood. Symbolic, of course, of death. And the whole Old Covenant, of course, blood always was pointing to not only the atonement for sin, but it was death, 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 death. And of course, John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away forever by this one death, not a repeated death, the sin of the world. But I think there's an interesting relationship here for Jesus um, he's a type of Moses, as we read about in Deuteronomy 18 a few weeks ago. Uh, the, you know, Moses says there's going to be one that's raised up like me, um, and he's going to be a type in a picture as of Moses. And so as Moses comes on the scene, turns the, the water into blood, Jesus comes on the scene, and he turns the water into wine. And so... He's going to repurpose that which is old and symbolic of external cleansing, and he's going to give it a purpose of joy, a purpose for celebration for the people at this wedding. But here's the thing. People living out of the old system, not touched and repurposed by Jesus, are just extracted from, drawn from, and eventually worn out as a stone pot. You ever feel like like these old stone pots, externally focused, all about the external, ritualistic, custom, tradition, all these stone pots. You ever feel like if you're just a stone pot and you're being extracted and extracted and extracted, there's no filling to the brim, there's no life, there's no repurpose to it? And so I think as Christians we have a greater purpose than that which these stone pots originally had. Jesus repurposed them for his purpose, which was a celebration of life and joy and joy. Christians, however, who try to live out of both purposes, both the Mosaic Old Covenant and the New Covenant, often find themselves frustrated, and I'm going to use that point to point out to this, this passage in Luke chapter 5. If you look up on the screen here, this is kind of symbolic of living out of two covenants simultaneously, the Old and the New. Jesus also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, if he does, he will tear the new one, and a piece from the new will not match the old. It's like, okay, you got my kids. I'm, I'm like, did you buy your pants that way? Really, Ross dress for less. Is that why it's you're dressing for a lot less because there's a lot less fabric around the knee area? Is that why it's less clothing so it's less money? I don't understand the buying pre ripped jeans. Um, <laughs> I remember wearing tough skins when I was a kid, they had the double knee so you'd. Pre- prevent that. Have you ever burned through a pair of tough skins? Anyways. um, So are you going to go back to Ross Dress for Less if you could find anything there? I guess they've been (laughs) ransacked too. Are you going to go back to Ross Dress for Less, buy a new pair of jeans, come back and cut your new pair of jeans and put it on your um, old pair of jeans? Because if you washed them, it would rip them, right? And that wouldn't even make sense anyways. And then he goes on to say this. And no one puts uh, new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. So the idea here is that when you take the juice, the crushed juice from the grape, and you put it into a container, those skins would be new. But when, look, grape juice ferments because it has natural sugars and natural yeast in it, it ferments... Within 24 hours, and it, it expands. And so, have you ever had a baseball mitt? Um, and then you, you, you tied it with it, it's brand new, and you tied it and you sleep on it. You know, you try to get it folded real nice. If Steve was here, he'd know what I'm talking about. But it, it, I, I didn't like baseball that much, and so I would be out in left right field and, <laughs> as a little kid in T ball. I would chew on the, the little strings on my Rawlings mitt, the leather. And those leather strings, if you sucked on them, they would get really hard. Does anyone, ever know, what I'm, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, if you already purpose these wineskins that have reached their maximum capacity, they've stretched out to the fullest, and then you put new active wine in them and they're going to expand it any anymore, it's going to burst them. That's what he's saying. Okay. And so, and then this last phrase. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good or the old is better. Because it takes about six months, they say, if you're going to make decent wine um, for the fermentation process and the the settling and the aging of all of it uh, to make it good. And so, yeah, because at first it would be bitter. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't have a body or texture to it. I'm not a sommelier. Is that what they call them? I'm not a sommelier either from Sommelier. But w- what's that called? A wa- it's funny because in Utah, I guess they had one of the nation's leading sommeliers in a state that prohibits drinking wine for their religious people. I'm like, and supposedly he has one of the best collections in all of the country, because yeah, yeah, a state that's like 80% LDS Mormon, they have a, the, a record, uh, they, they drink as much alcohol per capita as any other state, so therefore they need a state-appointed, because they have state liquor stores, a state-appointed wine sommelier to taste the wine to make sure it's okay for the citizens that aren't supposed to drink it anyways. Whoa, okay. <laughs> and he's got one of the best collections. But obviously, you know, um, I don't know wine. Um, so I don't know what's good or bad wine. But I do know this, that if it's the older, the better, right? If someone pull off on, uh, like, hey, I have a, I don't even know the difference of the names. <laughs> I have an 86 Cabriolet or Cab, that sounds like a convertible. Um, you know, <laughs> evidently the older's the better. And we know that, and this isn't anything new, right? This has been around for thousands and thousands of years they've kind of perfected the art of winemaking but next he says Jesus says fill it with water draw it out and carry it to the master so I want us to see the real heart of the matter of this miracle is that Jesus here is simply supporting creature comforts whether you think it's intoxicating wine or non-intoxic I'm not debating that all I'm saying is like you could live without wine but you can't Uh, live without water. They could have just served water. If you come to our house, you get water. (laughs) And it's not even cold. It's like we have that water jug. I open the refrigerator. We just ask our kids, there's nothing, there's like maybe almond milk once in a while. We can't even have regular milk. Um, But it's just water. And so, I want us to see that the real heart of the matter is that Jesus is even taking time out and his coming out event supports creature comforts. And that might clash with you a little bit because maybe your view of God is he's a killjoy, right? He's all about not having fun. But to Jesus, he's like I'm going to take the shame off the host that's extending hospitality and I'm going to I'm going to turn this water into very very good old aged wine that they would have said this is good it's interesting to me so making water into wine was not out of any sort of necessity it was just purely for a joyful celebration look at psalm 104 puts it this way and wine that makes glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengthens man's heart And so, you know, Jesus is supporting creature comforts, the joy of the celebration, and he's also celebrating one man and one woman in marriage that he designed, right? No other formula. There was one man and one woman, and that's what he is supporting, and the celebration that surrounds it. So, Again, he didn't heal anyone. He didn't pay for anyone's taxes. He didn't raise any dead. He didn't make the blind to see. He didn't heal the deaf. He didn't cleanse any lepers. He didn't make people walk. Uh, He didn't teach any sermons or give any parables. He just simply provided for the basic, common, joyful celebration of wine at this wedding feast. Okay? He simply gave them an opportunity to celebrate the joyous occasion of marriage, which was his big picture for coming too, So Jesus was also, uh, his first miracle, revealing his heart towards the people he loves by removing the shame off the host uh, of the party for those who came so far to be involved in it. This would have been an utter embarrassment and a shame to the master of the house and to the bridegroom. It would have set a bad tone. And Jesus says, I'm going to fix this. Don't worry. And this is his first miracle, this is his first miracle. So, I guess my application for us is this. Is can we be like Jesus in the sense that maybe people miss something along the way or maybe they have some oversight on something or maybe they neglect something or forget something and you see something that's potentially going to shame them you might in your heart say they kind of deserve it. They had it coming. Jesus could have said the same thing too. But instead, he removed shame. It's not shame on you, how we are most of the time, right? It's shame off you, how God is most of the time, right? So I just want you to take that away as you, as you leave this you know, day with a shame off you attitude as Jesus had. Uh, towards people that had some oversight, this is just being gracious, this is just being merciful. This is just the heart of the Father and so verse nine, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water, which was made to wine and did not know where it was from, but the servants knew uh, knew who drew the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, who would have been the responsible one for the wine, but he wasn 't Jesus was the real bridegroom responsible for the wine. And he said to them, every man at the beginning sets forth good wine, and when they have uh, drunk well, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of miracles Jesus did at Canaan of Galilee, and it was revealed to his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So the water which was made wine, and it was good wine, but almost like in communion, which we were were on schedule to have, but we're foregoing it because of, you know, um, uh, social... Uh, safety concerns and health concerns, but like in communion, how many times have you taken communion and the emphasis has mainly been on the, the juice or the wine, the blood, and very little about the bread, right? That's been my experience at least. And here, I think when we go to this story, we often go right to the wine and ignore the water, right? There's been a lot said about the water, but not a lot said about the water, in the, in the recorded words of God, there's a lot said about the water, but we don't hear a lot about the water. John, on the other hand, in his gospel, if I give you a tour, I don't know if I have the slide, but if I do, then go ahead and throw it up there, Michael. But just look at, uh, look at how John addresses water throughout his gospel. Chapter one, baptizing with water. Chapter two, water to wine or water for purification. Chapter three, Jesus says, unless you're born of the water and of the spirit. So you need to, you know, your mom's water breaks. That's your physical birth. You receive Jesus. That's your spiritual birth. That's being born again. John 4, the woman at the well. And then Jesus says, You could drink of this and thirst again, but anyone that drinks of me never thirst. He's talking about living water. John 5, the guy healed at the, the pool of water. John 6, Jesus walks on water, shows that he has control over the physical elements. John chapter 7, Jesus proclaims loud, and he says, Anyone that believes on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 13, he says, uh, he washes their feet with water, and he says, you know... Um, uh, love one another. By this shall all people know that you're my disciples. And he uses water as that, that outward display of of an internal um, uh, affection towards one another. And then in John 19.35, out of his side when they stabbed him, and this is, of course, you know, prophetically from Zechariah. He already said this was going to happen. Um, that out of his side would come forth blood and water. And so John, even in his gospel, has a lot to say about water, but let's get to the wine part. I think it was legitimate wine, but I think Jesus was doing it uh, in, in a legitimate way. Here's what I mean. He turns water into wine. Could be, could people have abused the wine? Sure, they could have, totally. Okay, so Jesus, I'm going to point this out to you a little bit. So Jesus makes a lame person to walk again. Could they with their legs walk into a store and steal something? Yeah. Uh, that would have been a legitimate use used in an illegitimate way. He heals a blind person. Could that blind person then use their eyes illegitimately and look at someone to lust? Sure. What about the... This is kind Don't forgive me on this. But what about the woman... I thought about this. What about the woman with the issue of blood? She couldn't be physically intimate you know with the body parts that that's connected to but what if after she was healed she goes out and she's the most promiscuous woman in town she could have right she would have been able to um what about a person that gets their life back they're raised from the dead what if they with their life their legitimate life back they get so angry they take someone else's life in their lifetime their new lifetime Peter gets a gold coin. Like I said, what if he doesn't use it for taxes? What if he goes and he pays for a prostitute? All I'm saying is like, there's legitimate things that could be used in an illegitimate way. And I know people squabble over this and they split hairs about this, uh, but the Bible all over speaks about not drinking wine in excess and getting drunk. That's the mandate from God. I think a lot of times people try to make it like it's all grape juice throughout the whole Bible. And I'm like, wait a second, I have a hard time believing that, that it's all grape juice. I have a really hard time believing that. And if you do, I'm not here to correct you uh, uh, at all, but people have been making and drinking wine for thousands of years and in all different c- cultures. And all. They've been, I remember I was uh, doing a missions trip in Romania and this Romanian pastor, this is the coolest thing, he took us up to this bell tower, and we went up to this bell tower. It's like 50, 75 feet up, and it was in the center of the village. And he opened up a door where he said, this is how we'd execute capital punishment in, in this church, which was hundreds of years old. We would th- we'd tie people, we'd throw them down, uh, and then they would die. And then he says, you see all those graves over there? These are all the people that were executed from this bell tower. Like, okay, I want down. <laughs> but he says, let me take you out to my vineyard. Went out to his vineyard. He had this, this uh, thing in the side of a mountain. It's kind of like a cave, but it had a fancy door on it. We went in there, and uh, he had all of these barrels of... He, did, he fermented stuff from potatoes, which is customary for Romania. You, you sit down and then, you know, salute, you know, whatever their thing is. Um, and then he made wine. And I was with all my Dutch friends, and I didn't drink, but I took pictures of all my friends that did. Um, because <laughs> we're all happy and happy. And he's like, try my wine, my vintage wine. And so he's pouring out all his wine. And then after about an hour, I sitting, and I took pictures of all my Dutch friends that passed out. They were just like... <laughs> so I just thought it was funny. All I'm saying is like wine is, is everywhere. If you're trying to escape the fact that it's just grape juice, I think you're going to have a hard time, especially if you consider even the first man that grew the first vineyard, Noah. After the flood, check out Genesis. Noah didn't get drunk off of grape juice. <laughs> Noah, a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank from its wine, got drunk, passed out naked in his tent. What do we learn from this? Noah didn't wake up in the next morning and say, note to self, don't fall asleep in a tent. He didn't say that. Note to self, don't get drunk with wine. Bad things happen when you get drunk. (laughs) Note to self, don't get drunk with wine. But we can't make his vineyard out to be Welch's grape juice, right? He drank in excess, and that was the problem. So the issue wasn't the wine that he made from his own vineyard. The issue was the excess and drunkenness part as you know this verse Ephesians 5 18 and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit so God tells you don't drink excessively probably the best policy is not to drink at all um, but be filled with the spirit because the idea is who's controlling you wine or the Lord so I'm not here saying drink wine or don't drink wine. I think the bigger, issue, the bigger issue is who is controlling us, wine and spirits or the Holy Spirit, right? That's the bigger issue. Abstinence is probably the best policy. And if you're, you say, I don't see that in the Bible, then at least see this. The love for your brother is the better policy. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 14. And this will be the last passage that we'll look at. But I want you to turn in your Bible because it's not going to be on the screen, because I want you to see this, this in its entirety. Him that is weak in faith, receive, but not to doubtful disputations. For one that believes that he may eat all things, um, another who is weak eats only vegetables or herbs. So let not him that eats despise him that eats not, and let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God hath received him. Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, yea, he shall be holden up, uh, for God is able to make him stand. One, One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Isn't that weird that God just says, okay... You're free to think St. Patrick's Day is the best holiday on the calendar and you're free not to think it. You could think every day is the Lord's Day or you could think Sunday is the most sacred day on the calendar. You're free to, you know, with your own conscience before God, observe the calendar how God is leading you. And his his directive is don't ju- don't look down on someone else that has a look, Easter's your holiday, but Christmas is, you know, someone else's holiday. You know, it, you're free to just do it as unto the Lord without judgment for how another person observes the day. He that regards the day regards it to the, unto the Lord. He that regards it not uh, the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the Lord, he eats not and gives God thanks. So the uh, one person allows one sorts of food, the other person doesn't. Just do it as unto the Lord. Um, I don't mind vegans right? <laughs> but if vegans get all self-righteous and start telling me what I can and cannot eat, it kind of bothers me a little bit, right? Um, my wife eats plant-based. She's a plant-based chef at a plant-based, vegan-only, hyper-Shiite, far-right-wing vegetable as you could get. They even make their own honey because they don't think that you could use honey from bees. That's how vegan it is, Right? And look, if I, eat, if I put a little honey on my toast with the, with the bear and the little pop lid, don't judge me. I, you know, I, okay. So, for whether we live, uh, for no one, verse 7, for no one lives to himself and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore die, we are the Lord. So there's a big picture. He says, for to this end, both Christ Uh, died and rose and revived that he might be lord of both the uh, dead and the living but why do you why do you judge your brother or why do you set it not uh to your brother for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of christ for as it is written as i live says the lord every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess so then every one of us will give account to himself to god yourself to god let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no one put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. That's why I'm saying that's probably the best policy right there. I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean and of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. You still think pork and shellfish and... You know, fish without scales is unclean, that's fine, do it as unto the Lord. You know, but don't judge those that say, Well, in the new covenant, God said it's all clean, eat in faith. If you if you're doing that, fine. That's totally fine. Do it as unto the Lord. But if your brother be grieved with your meat and your your liberal your liberality or your liberty and your freedom, now you walk not in love. Destroy not him with your food or your liberty for whom Christ died. It's not grace in your face. Oh, you don't eat pork and shellfish and catfish. I'm going to have a pork, shellfish, catfish, bacon, pork belly, po' boy sandwich dipped in bacon grease. And I'm not going to do that. So don't let your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God, and here's the big picture. This is why I don't want to get all caught up in like the food and the drink and this and that. For the kingdom of God is not of meat and drink, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and is approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things uh, where we could edify one another. For meat destroys not the work of God and the things, uh, all things are indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eats with the fence. It's okay, but if you're, doing, if you're eating and drinking legitimate things in an illegitimate way, now it becomes a problem, is what he's saying, especially at the expense of your brother or sister. And I think here's the kicker. It's good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby your brother or sister stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Look, oh, there's the verse. I didn't know. I didn't make that slide. Thank you, Jerry. You probably did that. I don't know. So grape juice isn't going to make anyone stumble. Has anyone ever stumbled over grape juice? No one stumbles over grape juice at communion. No one stumbles over grape juice. But what he's saying is, look, if you drink wine... Okay, to the Lord you do it. If your conscience is clear with that, don't get drunk. And the bigger picture is don't do it if you're going to make your brother stumble. Hey, you're not a vegetarian, you're not a vegan, and some people have super hardcore religious beliefs about the life of the animals and the purpose of the animals. And you think, well, God gave me dominion as a man, as he did Adam, to have dominion over all the creatures I'm okay with it. Um, well, other people aren't. So don't use your liberty as an occasion to make your brother stumble. So best policy probably abstinence. You you say no. I don't. I don't think there's you know prohibition in the Bible. Well, then second best policy consider your consider love. Consider your neighbor, right? Consider your neighbor. So, um, do we read the last verses? You probably already read it. Hast thou faith, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in the thing which he allows. He gives you space there. But do it as unto the Lord, but don't do it as a stumbling block to your brother. And he that doubts is damned if he eats, but he that eats not in faith, but whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You want to talk about what sin is? There you go. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin that's the bigger issue not pork or wine or vegan or not vegan and uh we could get all bogged down in the dietary stuff um but you do it in faith as unto the lord whatever you do do it all to the glory of god does it glorify god well i want to close with this um told you i'm not an expert in wine but i want to take you on a tour to a winery here um Chateau Saint Michel. It's in Woodenville, Washington, and my mom used to work there. She worked there when I was a little kid, and I would go there. and Obviously, I wouldn't drink wine, uh, but I would go there, and I would. Um, my mom would work, but the 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 acreage there of the chateau, which is kind of pictured after a chateau from France, um, there's acres and acres of just gardens and vineyards. They have these um, salmon pools where they grow in different stages, you know, the small to small, big, medium, large. And I would just I would look at the salmon. I would tr- feed them stuff. And I just watch these salmon, um, just huge salmon. Um, and then it, it, where they store all the wine, it smells weird. Uh, I remember that. It smells kind of weird, but huge. They have oak barrels everywhere. The oak smells good. If you've ever smelled oak barrels, the oak smells really good. So you go in there and it's just aromatic. It's rich. It just, it's very distinct. And I remember, here, go to the next slide. Go to the next one. Um, There's a picture of inside uh, Chateau St. Michel, It's one of their storing places. But as a little kid, look at how tall those things are. Picture Costco with just barrels and barrels and barrels and barrels of wine. And as a little kid, I remember I got lost there at one time, and I got freaked out because all I was surrounded by were these oak barrels. Where's my mom? Where's my mom? <laughs> and it smelled, and there was no one there. And I, uh, but I do remember this. There was like a, um, an area where you could, you could buy their you know vintage stuff and all that kind of stuff, but they served cheese. And if I'm addicted to anything, it's cheese. I'm like a rat with cheese. They had the best cheese. And so I had a fun time there as a kid. Uh, but I will say this. Wine, the winemaking process. I never learned how to do it. But from my understanding, some of you might know more than me. You crush the grapes. You remove the pulp from the stems. You strain it into containers. Uh, you cover it. You let it sit in, uh, out of sunlight. But these rooms are not cold. You got to understand they're be, they're between seventy to ninety degrees Fahrenheit, and they have to be like that for up to years. So you'd think like some I guess some wine you store cool, some you don't. But when you're aging it, it needs to be above seventy degrees, out of direct sunlight. So, um, and then uh, uh, you grapes that are crushed and put into a container will start to ferment at this temperature within 24 hours. Like I said before, you need to let it age about six months, uh, and the older, the, the longer, the better, supposedly. And I'll go back to Luke 5.39 again, if you'll go to that. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. And I guess that's why old wine is so expensive. Does anyone know like the most expensive bottle of wine or does anyone know like what a really old wine costs? Hundreds of dollars. I've seen it on movies, right? Bring out the best. Um, So all I'm trying to say is that whatever your take is on this whole thing of Jesus turning the water into wine, I don't think he was purposing it for people to get drunk and to use something that has been made for thousands and thousands of years a legitimate beverage used in an illegitimate way. The content of it was probably very little, any, if, if any at all. Uh, I'm not here squabbling about that because I know people have strong feelings, and I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. But when you read that they want the old is better than the new, and Jesus himself is saying that, he's just taking a cultural understanding of how people understand uh, wine. So in conclusion... This was the beginning of the miracles that Jesus revealed his glory. What could we learn? We could learn to live as Jesus lived. He said, it's not my hour. It's not my time. The Father will tell me when it's my time. So we could, we could apply that. We could go forward in faith when God tells us to go forward in faith. We could also learn to act like Jesus in, in how he dealt with this celebration. It was going to be a huge embarrassment for the host in the bridegroom, but he does shame off you, not shame on you. And we could take that with us in all areas of our life. We could also learn that legitimate things can be used in illegitimate ways. And it's best not to be a stumbling block to any as our policy. We could also know that um, God is not a killjoy, but he delights in marriage and especially concerning Christ and the church. Amen? Hopefully I handled that okay. If you do have any questions or concerns, I don't, I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm just trying to share my heart and hopefully reveal the heart of the Father. I just think it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't do any physical healings. He doesn't help anyone. Instead, he takes a wedding celebration he says, I want you guys to enjoy the celebration. So I'm going to translate this. What could take months, he did it instantaneously. He turned it into good wine, which obviously he said from the other passage is old wine. He made it good, which it would have been a miracle because how could you make good wine in a matter of seconds? You can't do it. You need to age it forever and ever, but he did it instantly. So let's stand and let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. I thank you that we're your bride I thank you that the kingdom of God is not of meat and drink, but of righteousness and joy, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to go be the church. Help us to take what you demonstrated at this wedding and help us to see people through your eyes when they're down and out, when they're struggling, when they have needs, that we we could remove the shame. We could do a shame off you, whereas the world would be quick to judge and do shame on you. So, Lord, help us uh, not to be a stumbling block in whatever we eat or drink. Help us to do whatever we do to the glory of the Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.